I have entitled the message in Romans this time, The Heart of Biblical Christianity. The Heart of Biblical Christianity. We come today in our journey through the book of Romans to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. These are critical, pivotal verses that we have in front of us here. Just by way of review, to get us back into the passage, Paul has been really sharing his heart with us as we've been studying through here. In his early remarks, he really, I think, in a wonderful way, connects with this audience he is writing to. And I'd like to begin, if I could, I want to just read back through the verses. It may have been a little while since you read verses 1 down through 16 and 17. So I want to just read through them together and then we'll already be into the flow of the passage. Paul writes and he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ." To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. And that became the theme of many of our messages here together. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last, I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I might be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise, so much as is in me. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I live my life preaching the gospel. I preach it anywhere, anytime. And I'm ready to come and preach it to you. He says, and here is the reason, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. These two verses really form a bridge between the introduction and the entire epistle. They are, in fact, perhaps two of the most important sentences that you will ever read in your whole life. They are the heart of the epistle. They are the epistle in a very condensed, packed summary form. 
what Paul asserts here as effectively his theme and thesis, he unfolds line upon line, chapter after chapter, until he has delivered 11 chapters of solid, sheer, deep, rich doctrines of grace. And thus Romans becomes the mountaintop of the Bible and these verses are the heart of the book of Romans. One thing right as we get into verse 16, we have a statement here that we touched on at the end of looking at Paul's service from the heart and that is his boldness. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is tremendous to me to see a minister who does not operate his ministry based on what man thinks, but rather entirely upon what God thinks. Because when you are lined up vertically with God, then that natural man-to-man relationship horizontally will be in the right place. Paul lived with that vertical axis right, connected, strong before God. As a result, he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he knew the power. He knew it in his own life. He was a living, walking testimony of that power. Paul was not like some ministers standing that could be likened to conductors that never really get on the train, to porters effectively that stand at the side of a train, taking tickets from people, telling them where they're going on the train, but never getting on the train and going to see the sights themselves. Many ministers are like that. They preach an unknown, unfelt Christ. But Paul preached from the context of personal experience in the power of God. Therefore, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He loved to preach it. And it didn't matter what you did to him. Didn't matter if he had a string of, quote, successes with people responding or a long string and chain of rejection. It didn't deter him one way or the other because his ministry wasn't hammered out by the dictates of men around him, but rather the mandate of God upon his life, that call of love. Think of it, he was imprisoned in Philippi. You know that story, right? When they sang praises at God, him and Silas at midnight, while their legs were stretched out in the stocks, which if you don't know it, they would have taken them, imprisoned them, and put their legs in in the stocks, and they would have then spread them open. It was a torture device where possibly it would have dislocated their hips. They were in incredible agony, imprisoned. Talk about rejection, imprisonment, torture, and at midnight they're singing praises to God and the praises have enough gospel content in them that when the earthquake comes as a sign really of God's approval on them and the jailer rushes to them, he runs in because he's now in peril of his life and his first question is, what must I do to be saved? Because he had heard in the songs, obviously, the gospel. They weren't ashamed. Didn't matter what you did to them. They chased him out of Thessalonica. They had to smuggle him out of Damascus and Berea, whether he's being lowered over the wall in a basket under a murder threat, or whether he's standing on Mars Hill with the great erudite philosophers of Athens, and they're laughing at him because he follows Christ, or whether he's being considered a fool at Corinth or being declared a blasphemer, a lawbreaker in Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish faith, or whether he's taken out and stoned until he dies at Lystra. Did it not matter what men did to him? 
He was serving an omnipotent God and he knew on a personal basis that delivering power. And he knew that for everybody that rejected, there would be those that would accept the Lord. And that even the ones that rejected deserved to hear of the love of God, just as he had. And he had his fair share of rejection, being one who persecuted the church before he came to Christ. So none of these things were allowed to intimidate him. He could face anybody, anytime, and preach Christ. Now I think that is a tremendous example to us. That boldness. Somehow he was so in touch with the power to change their lives and the power that had changed his that nobody could intimidate him. My question then becomes, with the same power available to us, why do we allow people to intimidate us? Why do we allow the mores of our society and the prevailing philosophies of our society brought to bear on our own lives personally by those around us to intimidate us? I think that Paul saw certain things about Christ, man's lost condition, and eternity that coupled together with his own experience of God's power drove him forward in an unintimidated way. He understood that the gospel was the power of God to salvation. The Greek word is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. Yes, dynamite. <laughs> Can you say that again? Dynamite. dynamite. And really, it's, you think of the explosive power of dynamite we're talking about the power here, the word he grabbed for is dunamis. The power really is the omnipotent power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it carries with it the omnipotent power of God. This isn't just Paul going out with a speech. This isn't Paul going out with some new 5-step, 12-step, 10-step, 18-step, whatever thing that's going to, from an outward form of positive pressure, reform your life a little bit. This is the omnipotent power of God which alone can change men's lives. And he believed in it. But you know, he also believed in the wrath of God. He believed in the wrath of God. Great theologian that he was, he understood there was such a thing. If you look at verse 18 here, in Romans 1, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it all these wonderful things of grace and salvation are revealed then he says in verse 18 for looking back toward what he has just said for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against some ungodliness and occasional unrighteousness of men or extreme no he says against all and how inclusive is all it's all it's all inclusive and so he understood nobody would escape that bothered him. It concerned him. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I know my initial reaction, just as a human being reading that, I think of this angry God with a big giant club on a throne. And he's looking around getting mad because he's holy and, and mankind isn't. And here and there he sees a real sinful one and he just can't hold himself back and he breaks forth in wrath and smashes that individual. And then he looks around, you know, with a glare on his face to find another. Kind of like you at the last anthill you were at. You know, when the ants were crawling all over you and you discovered it, and you looked down and you smashed one and looked for another who might try to bite you. Actually, like I did this morning, sitting outside, when I found ants crawling on me. And I looked around in wrath. I hate ants. And there I was smashing them, you know, breaking forth in wrath. 
I think we get the picture of God like that. That's not the wrath of God. That isn't the wrath that Paul understood. It's a sustained aversion to evil that a holy God has. That is His wrath. And it is something under complete, total, utter control. It is something that exists side by side in a God who is love. With what He will do about sin. He believed in the wrath of God. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then if you look at uh, Romans 2.5, just turn over there to the right. He says, but in accordance, and we'll look at this in detail later. He says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here in a book that reveals more of the love of God, more of the grace of God than any other book in the Bible, we have perhaps some of the strongest language about God's judgment and His wrath to be found anywhere. And he speaks of a treasuring up of wrath until that day of wrath. So it isn't God with a club on a throne, angry and out of control. It is a fixed, appointed day when God will file men by individually. The books will be opened. The details of their life will be reviewed. And then the just reaction from a God who so loved them, He sent His only Son to die for them. The just reaction to their rejection of that Son will then be given its due punishment. The due punishment, which is to be banished forever from the presence of God, is far worse than just some big, muscular, out-of-control God with a club who is annihilating people. Because annihilation would be far easier than eternal banishment where you live on and on forever. So it is this fair, He will judge the world in righteousness, but it is this fair meeting out of His wrath that Paul has in mind and he knows the horror of that banishment forever to an unsaved person and it bothered him. Thus he wanted to do everything he could do to rescue people from that. And thus it didn't matter what you did to him. Stone him to death, torture him did not matter because he saw beyond that to the eternal soul and he knew how long it took him to come around when he was so rejective of the gospel, if I could put it that way. And so he had this unashamed boldness that was fueled by an understanding and a belief in the wrath of God as well as the power of God. It's interesting to me that Jesus, or actually it was uh, when Jesus and John the Baptist, that whole scene there in Matthew 3, 7, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to his baptism, And uh, John said to them, O you generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist believed it. That's why he was out there living his whole life to preach redemption from it, rescue from it. Very same thing drove him that drove Paul. But Paul also believed not only the power and the wrath, but he also believed in the love of God. That's why he wasn't ashamed. I think it's a wonderful combination to see and grab the power, to understand the wrath, but to have wrapped around all of it the love. Can you turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians? And we'll get to uh, the outline in a minute. We need to take a running leap at all of this. Maybe we'll get to the outline next time. 
But these are two verses you want to stop and really move in on slowly so you can get it all. He believed in the love of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he's not just talking about himself, but all those who were with him. He says, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then all, then we're all dead. And then in verse 15, And that he died for all, that they which live, notice this, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. So, as we are effectively finishing off our look at the heart of Paul and examining his boldness, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here he says, the thing that holds my life in the path I take, the thing that holds me on the course that I run on, in the lane I drive in, however you want to look at it, it's the love of God keeps me where I am, moving how I move. Because I know he died for all, because all were dead, and that they which now live should not live unto themselves. So, in Paul's mind, to just take forgiveness and go on his way and map out his own life and do his own thing was not even an option. Because the way he saw it, he couldn't live for himself but unto him. And for him, that meant to go back out and find all those like him that God wanted to save as well. And it was the love of Christ that constrained him in that. So these are the things that kept him from being ashamed of the gospel, from being intimidated by men. I believe if we understand these things, pray over them, think on them often, then we won't be intimidated either. That doesn't mean as a human being there won't be moments where you're a little nervous. You know, there where there won't be moments where you're going, oh, oh God, just open the door a little wider. You know, and then, have you, have you, do you go to church, you know? And, and then, boom, the anointing hits. And do you know the love of Christ? Well, no, no one's ever told me. Then the anointing kicks in further, and it's, oh, well, let me tell you now. Do you know that He loves you? He has a plan for your life. He died for you. Well, well no, not, I don't, what does that mean, you know? And the next thing you know, you're praying with them. And they're coming to Christ. Then they're calling you every day because their whole life has changed. This is the thing that should drive us forth to make us unashamed and to be bold. And that doesn't mean that in our boldness we will be those kind of people that are obnoxious and that really only alienate lost people from the gospel, but that we will be firm and loving and gracious and gentle at the same time. I think individuals like that are almost unknown today. How often do you meet somebody who is really loving that's also really firm? Usually it's one way or the other, but not in Christ. You have it in Christ himself, you have it in Paul, it's a tremendous blend. This heart of this man, amazing, and the boldness. But the heart of the man leads us up now to the heart of the book. And as I said back here now in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17, we now come to the most important sentences in the book. Because everything else is an elaboration on these verses. If you understand these truths and you positively respond to them by placing your life in the hands of God, it will permanently alter your time on this earth and your eternity. That's how powerful this is. They are the summary of the entire epistle. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now what does that mean? Well, you have to stick around and keep coming because we'll get to it eventually, but not 
today anyhow. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just will live by faith. So here as we look at this, there's basically four things I want to draw out. First of all, the gospel offers salvation. The gospel offers salvation. What is that all about? Secondly, the gospel brings power. Third, the gospel is embraced by faith. And fourth, the gospel reveals righteousness. And again, we're going to be studying these themes all the way through, so I'm not going to go in great detail on all of them, but we do need to bring them up and think about them at this point. In verse 16, the gospel offers salvation. What does it mean? Just think about this one word, salvation. What does it mean? What does it mean to be saved? I think I've told you before that right after I became born again, I had stuck the only existing bumper sticker at the time in 1971, Jesus bumper sticker that I could find. On my car was this little thin thing about that long, one inch thick and about eight inches long, and it said, Jesus saves, and it kind of glowed, you know. It was blue and white, and it kind of glowed. And uh, a friend of mine came over, and I was just looking at it, thinking I was so cool, and he says, what does that mean, Jesus saves? And I didn't know. I was like a week old as a Christian. I, did, I, didn't ha- I was searching quickly for some great theological answer. I didn't know. So I said, well, um, I don't know. I'm kind of new at this, but uh, I know he saves, so there. You know? <laughs> now I'm praying that in our study together, I'll figure that out and get an answer after all these years. <laughs> Just kidding. What does it mean, salvation? What does it mean, Jesus saves? It's deliverance. It's deliverance. He is the great deliverer. He is the great rescuer. The word basically means rescuer, deliverance. It's both. Man is rescued from sin. That's why he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. It's a rescue operation. And you are rescued initially from the position of guilt that you have before God. I'm not so sure any human being, saved or otherwise, fully understands that. I mean, we experience the greatness of being delivered, but to understand your position of guilt before God is something I think you grow in that understanding as the years go by. As you look back, in the end, it is intensely theological as well as practical. But the bottom line is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged the human race into sin. They were polluted with sin. As parents, all of their offspring are polluted as they were polluted. Thus, you come to understand why the Bible can make the statements it makes. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now go to chapter 5 to verse 12. Here's a statement about Adam, and we will get into this in detail when we get there. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed, this is spiritual death as well as physical, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And the proof is, is that all men die. That is the bottom line proof. How can you say for sure that all men are sinners? They all die. And God said, In the day that you sin, you will surely die. Thus, from one man representing all of us and being his offspring, 
All men have sinned in Adam. Then look in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. We see the, the consequence of this sin and guilt before God. It says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The position of guilt, the wages of sin, death. And then, in one of the most intense passages that we'll study in Romans, back in chapter 3, verse 19, by the time we get to Romans 3, 19, you will be crying out for error to get out of that section on judgment. And just about the time you think you can't take another study, another week of it, we'll come blasting out of the darkness into the light and into the grace of God in the, in the verses right around verse 23, 24 and right in there. But in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may be guilty before God. If you have an NIV Bible, it says that you might, all the world might be accountable to Him. This guilt, this position of guilt before God is so grave and serious that the only way to deal with it when the blood of Christ does not atone for that sin in the life is to deal with it eternally in exile from God. You meditate on that for a little while, you begin to get a grasp on this position of guilt that man is rescued from. And the more you understand that, the more you thank God for His grace. The position of guilt. But also, it's rescue from the power of sin over us. Not just the position of guilt that sin left us in, but the power of sin over us. Paul says back in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So that in salvation, you are rescued from the power of sin over us. You say, then why do I still sin? Because you're still in the body. You say, well, it seems to me not much has changed. Well, think harder. What has changed is this. Before salvation, you live as a human being in an unhindered bondage of darkness. Unhindered. That is to say that the devil in the end and sin in the end has free reign, free course in your life. That's why the human race is in the condition it is in. You do not reject God, your Creator, without grave consequence and have as a reality at the same time Satan and all of his demons. So that the power of sin over us is what we're rescued from. The unhindered work of Satan is that which is shattered. Unhindered. You might want to write that word down. Unhindered. So that now it is hindered greatly. There is a difference. We're not perfect now. We, we don't have... Some of us feel we may not have had one day where we haven't sinned. And that's probably true. But there has been this unhindered work of Satan and sin, but now that's been shattered. And now there is, for the first time, the freedom to say no. The power to say no. And oh, that blessed joy that comes when we do say no, right? You know the charge you get from a sin? It's a very quick charge and then it's over. And then the guilt that rushes in, that seems to last on and on, sometimes for life. But how great is that blessed feeling that comes when we say no to sin? 
we turn around and we take the hand of God, we say yes to Jesus. We say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And that flood of peace in the heart, that flood of light on the soul, that cup that overflows, that's the evidence of the unhindered work of Satan now being shattered. And now invading that space, if I could put it that way, is the power of God. And that is evidenced by changes in our lives. For the first time, we know the freedom from unhindered bondage of sin. And we have the freedom of choice because that choice is brought enablement from God. Thus, our choices become critical. Have you thought about how critical your choices are lately in life? That's the determining factor for your future as a Christian. You see, in salvation, we're rescued. We're, we're delivered from the guilt in that position. The unhindered work of Satan is shattered. John tells us Jesus came at the cross to destroy the works of the devil, that unhindered work. But from there, as God works within us, we have to make choices. And the choices we make have their fruit in our lives. You look at people that are born-again Christians and they live constantly miserable lives, it seems. They're the kind of people you want to take them somewhere and, and host them there. You know, keep them away from everybody else because they, the witness is so bad. They're not true examples of, of the Christian life. They are the antithesis of biblical Christianity. Those people, if they are really born again, because some within that group aren't, and that's why they live like that. But if they are really born again and they're living on the lowest level, it's because they habitually make foolish decisions. And in that sense, you become almost a practical atheist. You understand what I mean by that? You may in your life be a true believer in God on your way to heaven, but that's what you believe. That's your belief system. But in your practical daily living, you live like there is no God. That's what Stephen Charnock, great Puritan writer, called practical atheism. And thus, that is the result of habitually making foolish decisions. When you make the right ones, you walk in the line of God's blessing. Proverbs 26.2 says, As the bird by wandering, as the swallow by flying, so the curse causeless shall not come. I'll read it to you from the NIV. Like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, the undeserved curse doesn't come to rest. You know, the swallows, they kind of fly around like this, you know, and they just... <laughs> they build their nests on your house, you know, those little mud nests. And then you see them up close, firsthand. <laughs> they have this real erratic form of flight, and they seem to never land hardly. The Proverbs is saying that there's a reason. There's a reason in your life when it seems a curse has come on your life. The Bible says you reap what you sow. So you make choices. You sow the Spirit, you reap life everlasting in a practical experiential way from God and you live in freedom or you sow to the flesh and you reap corruption and that corruption is just in a sense when it comes because you put it together you sowed it you sow to the wind you reap the whirlwind so you constantly make foolish decisions you'll live in a defeated life but if you simply obey the word simply say yes to God and obey the word you live in the abundant joy of ever-increasing victory. Ever-increasing victory. 
Turn in your Bible, could you, to the book of Isaiah. A couple of things I want to look at there. We're talking about rescued from the power of sin over us, specifically making the right choices. And Isaiah 40, verse 31, has a great thought on that. Actually, verse 31, Isaiah 40, 31, it says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run. They shall not be weary. They shall walk. They shall not faint. It is a tremendous picture to see this dependency upon God who alone can break the bondage of sin on our lives and to come in trusting faith and wait on Him and then to find your strength renewed and then to find yourself soaring. There are those moments in the Christian life where we feel like, I call it like I'm hang gliding. I feel like I'm, I've never done it, but I've seen it. And I feel like I'm hang gliding. Lifted up, borne along by the Holy Spirit. We have these hawks that hover outside of our house where we live because there's a hill there and the updraft comes and they literally, almost eye level, hover outside our window without moving one wing. And on certain days, they just stay there forever hovering, sustained completely by the updraft of the wind. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strengths. They'll mount up like wings of eagles, like on wings of eagles, and be sustained by the power of God completely. It is a tremendous thing of power from God, ever-increasing victory as He breaks the power of sin over us. But further, and you might as well just stay here in Isaiah, He also rescues us from the pollution within us. The pollution within us, warped, twisted, the way we think. I love the fact that God comes and straightens out our thinking. If you ever wondered why it's important to read the Bible, it's because we head in the direction of our currently dominant thoughts. And when you fill your mind with God's thoughts, when you're thinking God's thoughts that He has thought and written down, you sit and think those thoughts after Him, it has a way of straightening out your thinking. It takes the warped, crooked, twisted thinking and it straightens it out. I love Isaiah 40, verse 4. Can you look at Isaiah 40, verse 4? The promise is concerning the life. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight. That is so tremendous. That's what happens to us. The twisted pollution within us is made straight by the work of God. Go to Isaiah chapter 42. I have a word from the Lord from Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 16. I don't know if you ever read this before, but it says, And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. When Jesus healed the blind man in the Gospel of John, He said, I don't know much about this man. I don't know where he came from. I don't hardly know who he is. But all I do know for sure is this. Whereas once I was blind, now I see. Isaiah says, Of God I will bring the blind by a way they knew not. You see God taking you by the hand into a whole new life. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make the darkness become light before them. And then this, and the crooked things will be made straight. I don't know how that affects you, but 
the world, sin, it has made our lives so crooked. But God, in salvation, by His Holy Spirit, through His Word, takes the crooked and makes it straight. And only God can do that. And He says, These things I will do unto them, and I will not forsake them. Now, I love to put that together with Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. Can you turn there? Isaiah 30, 21. And your ears will hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or to the left. And so God comes to us. And He comes to our thinking, twisted, polluted. And He straightens it out. He does it with His Word. He does it with His Spirit. Isn't it great when you find yourself almost on automatic pilot, defaulting back to the way you used to think and starting to head in the direction of the way you used to live, and there is the Word of God coming and cleansing and straightening you out, laying hold on you. You hear a voice behind you. It's the Word of God saying, No, this is the way. Walk in it. Be blessed. So much we could say about this. Time is getting away from us. I want to wrap this up with some words I came across by Charles Spurgeon that so deeply minister to me. He said, The man who believes in God becomes by faith moved to everything that is right. Moved to everything that is right and good and true. His faith in God rectifies his mind and makes him just. In judgment, desire, aspiration, and heart he is just. His sin has been forgiven him freely, and now in the hour of temptation he cries, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He believes in the bloodshedding which God has provided for the cleansing of sin, and being washed therein, he cannot choose to defile himself again, because the love of Christ constrains him to seek after that which is true and right and good and loving and honorable in the sight of God. Having received by faith the privilege of adoption, he strives to live as a child of God. Having obtained by faith a new life, he walks in newness of life. It's as if immortal principles hold back the child of God from the life of sin as before. He says, if any man lives in sin and simply loves it without remorse or regret... He has not the faith of God's elect, for true faith purifies the soul. The faith that is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit is the greatest sin killer under heaven. By the grace of God, it affects the inmost heart, changes the desires and the affections, and makes the man a new creature in Christ. If there be on earth any who can be called truly just... They are those who are made so by faith in God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Indeed, no other men are just save those to whom the Holy Spirit gives the title and of which our text says the just will live by faith. Faith trusts God and therefore loves Him and therefore obeys Him and therefore grows more and more like Him. It is the root of holiness, the spring of righteousness in the life of the just. Faith trusts God and therefore loves Him and therefore obeys Him and therefore grows like Him. An ever-increasing level of victory and enjoyment of God. Great words from Charles Spurgeon. 
God said in Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean from all your filthiness, from your idols. I will cleanse you. He says, I'll put a new heart in you, Ezekiel 36, 26, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh, a sensitive, tender heart to me. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Why? Because he will do it in you. Salvation. Isn't it great? Book of Romans. So rich. Well, we've stepped into Romans 16 and 17. If you don't want to step too far, we might go in too deep real quick. Get drowned in the sea of grace. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, so much for this great salvation. How good it is, Lord, to see it as you rescuing us. To see that love. To see that truly judgment is your strange work, as the Bible says. To see that truly you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith in Christ. If you're listening to this message right now and you do not know Jesus Christ, this is the time to come to know him. If it seems that sin has taken you and twisted you and polluted you, and you can't take it anymore, you never wanted to be what you've become, this is the time to let him rescue you. Ask him to. Ask Him to forgive you for your sin, even now. Ask Him to fill you with His life, even now. Lord Jesus, come and live within me. Confess your belief in Him. And ask Him to reveal Himself to you. Give Him the reins of your life. Give Him the pink slip on your life. You've seen what you could do with your life. You've seen what sin has done to your life. Now it's time to see what He can do. Time to pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done. And Father, all of us together, even those all of us that know you, we pray that prayer now. Not our will, but your will be done, Lord. May your life fill us. We hold out the cup of our heart and we ask you to fill it, Father, knowing that even one drop from your great pitcher of love will fill our little tiny cup to overflowing and out of us will flow the excess, the rivers of living water. So Lord, fill us and bless us with your life. Show us again and anew this great love and this great power you have for us and that it's you, Lord. May we look to you and rest in you and know this wonderful experience, the power of God and the salvation. And Lord, send us back out to be lights in the world, unashamed, driven by love, and great concern to rescue men and women from the wrath that is to come and drive them and pull them into the arms of God who so loved the world, you sent your only Son. And we will give you all the glory, for we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.